Krishna's, it is mentioned that Maholi brought images from the Bauhaus as material for the courses, as demonstration material. Could you describe that? I wonder whether he brought material which is published in From Material to Architecture. You mean when he first came? Yeah. Oh, Maholi had brought, brought a lot of things that he showed from England. I mean, commercial work that he did in England, commercial work that he did in Berlin. I don't speak about his own work. You mean from the Bauhaus itself? No. He brought the book. I mean, we all saw the book. I have a copy of the book. Um, you know, the Bauhaus book. Do you know, he organized the exhibition of film on film photo, 1929 at Stuttgart. Yeah. And uh, I wonder whether he brought some of that material with him to England and to this country. Do you know, examples out of uh, agencies' work to show them the students. All you needed was the book. I mean, Molly was a terrible technician. You have no idea of how badly. But this, these aren't his. I know, I know, but I'm talking about use of material. He would make copies of things. You know, it didn't matter how badly the copy was if the idea was apparent. You know, and. Uh, I don't remember anything that Maholi ever brought or showed from either the, you know, that exhibition or from the Bauhaus. But the fact that we talked about it a great deal and saw that book, you know, those books, uh, both the Bauhaus book around photography and the book, uh, uh, well, the exhibition, I knew that Weston, for instance, you know, was in that show. And I knew that Brett Weston had been in that show. You know, which was quite fascinating to me because he was such a young man. Uh, but Mahoney never showed any of that stuff. But you know, now, I he may have not... had it, but I doubt that too because Mahoney was a refugee. I mean, Mahoney got the hell out of there pretty fast with very little stuff. Sybil complained for a long time, you know, that there was stuff in, in uh, Berlin that she never got out. Her own thing. I mean, Maltley was under attack by the Nazis. I mean, he had to leave. It wasn't a question of him wanting to leave. He had to. Well, that's clear. I mean, um, the relationship with Mies was very different. Mies could have stayed there, probably, as near as I can discover. Not that he was a Nazi. Do you remember something what he was speaking about, film and photo? I mean, was he telling something about his idea putting together this exhibition under a special aspect? Maholi was a great promoter, a great organizer of love to do exhibits, love to bring things together that had never been brought together in a new way. Maholi was passionate about photography and didn't know anything about it. It's history. I am the one that told Maholi that Stieglitz really represented the modern movement of photography. When he came here in 37, he was not aware of Stieglitz's importance. In his own book, if you recall, he uses Stieglitz as an example of romanticism, the picture of the dirigible, you know, with the light behind the cloud or something. Maholi went, I, at my 
prodding to meet Stieglitz and did, and they got along very well. And he I mean, apologized right. I mean, to Stieglitz. Uh, one example is that he asked Steichen and not Stieglitz for the 29. I mean, he asked Steichen and Weston being in, char in charge for putting the American part for people. Yeah. And therefore, it's not, I mean, it's not so fascinating that Brad Weston is in that. I mean, his father was in charge right. of that, that exhibition. But he was in it. You see, and people don't know that Weston and Steichen were. I knew that Weston, I never knew, for instance, until you just told me that Steichen, uh, uh, that Steichen did. I don't, yeah. I may have known it, but I've forgotten that. You know, Steichen chooses, uh, Reichsteiner chose Otterbridge, for example, and uh, Weston chose uh, Sturtevant beside Brad Weston. And I never heard about Sturtevant. Do you know Sturtevant? I just, uh, Paul Otterbridge, I know a great deal about. You see. He was one of the illustrators that I'm talking about. That was kind of one of our heroes, who was right in the midst of the 20s, you see, and did a great deal of color photography later. One other question, when you met Blumenfeld, yeah. He worked for Vogue at that time. Oh, yeah. And he I love Vogue. And he has still done his surrealistic work beside his fashion work? Meaning in his immigrant status, did he have time, I mean, was he just having to get by, sort of get enough jobs to sort of establish himself, or did he have time to continue his own? Uber Lumenfeld? Yeah. Lumenfeld was a very wealthy man. He had an apartment on uh, Park Central, a little above Park Central, 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 Central Park West, I think it was. No, he had a large studio on Central Park North, is that right? Impossible, that's Harlem. Central Park well, South. Well, the opposite direction, okay. South. Wherever all the fine hotels are, that's where he had a... Central, Central Park South. Central Park South, I'm just disoriented yeah. which way is North. North is the other end it's of Harlem. Harlem. Yeah. All right, Central Park South. He had a, a, a working studio there. And he made an enormous amount of money. I mean, he just had one account, the Minneapolis, the Oval Room, at one of the Minneapolis department stores. That you know, he'd make a photograph every month, and I don't know how much he got for it. Maybe two thousand dollars. The Oval Room of the Minneapolis. One of the department stores. If you just look in the vogues of that period, you'll see uh, the thing. But uh, I, used to, I even went home with Blumenfeld to his family, met his wife and everything. And uh, it was only recently I started tracking him down. I knew that he was dead, but I was uh, amazed and laughed uh, when I heard that he had run off with a young lady to London, and uh, that's where he died. Blumenfeld was the most sophisticated man I ever knew. When I brought him here for the seminar, I took him to the... Field Museum of Science, of, uh, of uh, Field Museum. Archaeology. Well, no, that's not. The Field Museum. Uh, and he had never been in the place. And as we approached various artifacts from various tribes, he was able to identify them before we even got to them. No, in his autobiography, he talks about as a child in Berlin. Where is his autobiography? There's a French yeah. translation of a German manuscript. I don't think it even exists in German. Well, they're supposed to come out. I'm waiting. Jadie et Daguerre. Jesus. Which is I just read in, in, in English? No, I didn't. Well, why don't you translate it? He's a fascinating guy. Um, anyway, 
Blumenfeld, I used to visit Blumenfeld in New York. He made lots and lots and lots of money once he got through being a handbag salesman in Amsterdam. Right. Uh, he was a great success here, enormous success. And anyway, I brought Blumenfeld because I was trying to pull these two different traditions. There was no experimental tradition in America. That is my contribution to education. I brought these traditions together. It did not exist the Baos. The Baos did not teach photography. Oh, no, wait a second. Arthur, <coughs> reading about one thing about early ID? I mean, no. No. no early school, I'm not sure if it's 39 or 37, so I'm not sure if it's New Bauhaus or School no. of Design. Maholi in an interview talks about how they had turned to the period of American patent furniture, which I don't know very much about, in the 1830s to the 1880s, to look at all the patents on technology in terms of furniture, right, in America, before it was killed by the Chicago Columbian Exhibition, in terms of importing all this European stuff that was much less sort of technologically inclined in advance. Yeah. And that was very curious to me. I mean, I don't know where that Not came curious from. curious at all. It's all very simple. Maholi was very interested in technology and, you know, ate up facts. You know, they loved that kind okay. of thing. Wait a minute. He was also a friend of Gideon, who came visiting here, Secret Gideon, great Swiss historian who did the definitive study on the stockyards and how you kill meat and transform it by means of refrigeration. That whole technological revolution that took place. I knew Gideon very well. But that, that had nothing to do with photography, I guarantee you. No, yes, okay. I mean, I, I knew. I had worked for magazines. I mean, Maholi was a different kind of a person. He was an educator, a display man. He did the special effects, you know, for, that were never used, you know, for things to come. The H.G. Wells English film. Right. Uh, but Maholi, uh, you know, had a very good one thing he contributed. He made conscious for everybody the point of view, you know. And he also was very inspirational. A lot of the things were stupid, like those collages, which are so, you know, they're so wonderful and they're so stupid simultaneously. Right now they're coming back. Arnold Crane, you know, has a whole batch of them. A lot of those were stolen. The montages. I'm not right. saying Arnold's a stone, but a lot of those are just swiped. Uh, Bill Larson's material, ask him where he got them. I did. And where did he get them? He won't tell you. Why not? Well, he got them from somebody in Chicago. He got them from the super of the building, who had helped Sybil clean out when she was moving. And Sybil left him with all this stuff. According to Bill. Well, then he stole it. Because Sybil knew the value of these things. I'm telling you, Sybil was very conscious then of Then he stole it. She sure. stole it. That's why the provenance of that is very suspect. Yeah. Uh, okay, Maholi <laughs> dies. The program you set up is both a two-year and a four-year. Right, the two-year thing goes for the two years. Few students come and begin. These are the younger students, you see, for four years. And so we tried to evolve. And then Barapo came, for instance, uh, to study 
really. He was a friend. His father was a friend of Molly's. So he came to Chicago. So Molly said, as he did with Hugo Weber, let's make a teacher out of him. Because they were, we were exploiting them. I mean, I don't know how much Barco got paid. Maybe $3,000. He had this you know, very handsome wife. And uh, they lived in a place, in a room next to Harry Callahan. Harry lived in one room, and Barco lived across the hallway. And we were all getting nothing. Barco had just arrived in this country? Yes. He came from India. As I recall, it came directly from India. Now I notice at the International Center for Photography, there's a lecture by Federico from the Bios to Aspen. He was one of the minor persons at the New Bios. Or, you know, he wasn't at the New Bios. It's cool as the sign of the Institute. I used them because they were far better than Sokolik and Lefstick. I mean, Franz is a very nice person and, you know, tall and serious and um, you know, I've done a lot of photography, some of which was published in I Knew in the 30s, in sure. Cornet, you know, where at least they were visual, you know, and a lot of nudes. He photographed his wife forever. Uh, but he's a smoothie, he still is a smoothie, you know, in Aspen, he takes portraits for people. Um, and so I used him, and he talked. And we evolved a program. But it was among the informing, guiding thing. See, the only reason I'm telling this is because people keep talking about Aaron and Harry as being teachers. And that is, yes, Aaron and I brought Harry, and then Harry was practically hopeless in dealing with anything administratively or, or anything else besides his retirement. Keep saying I was a bad administrator. Well, I was when Harry sort of betrayed me when Jemiah came. Anyway, I married Barbara and was married to her. And then in 47, we went and visited Edward Weston at Carmel and stayed there for five days. And that's when I got my Westons. We got along very well, laughed a great deal. He was already ill. Uh, but the woman that had uh, taken care of him, she uh, became a photographer, wrote the most moving thing about Weston when he died. Mary, Brett. Mary Brett? She married Brett. Okay. And then divorced Brett. He's now married to Louis Stuberman, uh, the filmmaker, uh, documentary filmmaker. Yeah. Well, she was married to one of our students here. Uh, uh, I don't know In, inside your program, was there an aspect of interdiscipline, interdisciplinary study? Because, you know, I'm thinking... There was all through the school. You had to take, everybody had to take the same courses. The two-year photography people didn't take as many courses outside. They did much more photography. I, as I built up the technical capabilities there, we could do more. I started out with nothing. There wasn't anything there. They used my, my cameras. All these cameras. I had a city special that I loaned, which was stolen by some convict that Moholy had hired unbeknownst to us, who was on probation. We got it back. Uh, I mean, there's another nice part of Moholy. He hired this guy so he could get out. And then the guy turned us on. <laughs> anyway, 
You want you to know? know? I, I want to ask because um, I'm curious whether Mahodis are at the new Baha's time, his decision asking scientists for guest lectures, for yeah. example, which was not at the Bauhaus in Germany, which mm -hmm. he's done here. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious whether it was, whether it depends to the sewage system in this country or whether it was an idea to bring scientists I can more speak very clearly, clearly to that. Maholi was quite astounded by American education and its difference from European, which he found was very close. I mean, I absolutely am clear about that. And he, it was a deliberate <coughs> thing on Mahole's part, that he, he was very interested that science was, you know, the leading edge of the technology that was existing. And that he wanted to have, he had a Hungarian friend, I can't remember, who was a very famous physicist, I can't remember, uh, as he was a friend of Bartok, in case you don't know it. He tried, he was always very interested in what was on the leading edges of science. Was that partially, though, some of Hutchins? I mean, because that's no. all it has nothing to no, do with Hutchins. No, nothing to do with Hutchins. Because no. they all did come out of the USC, or those three. Oh, yes, they sure did come. Yeah, they were from the USC. But Moholy knew these men and hired them for the particular press. I, again, and reminded. I studied semantics with Charles Morris. My paper for Morris was the semantics of motion picture. It's only now that you begin to get a whole semiology, you know, uh, book of Vancouver or something, or in England, you know, people like Peter Wallen. But that's what my paper was about, the semantics of motion picture. I also knew uh, Rudy Arnheim and wrote corrections on his book, which he wrote when he was 21 on film. I have the book. Rudy and I became friends of that over these many years. He remained a gestalt psychologist. But his book was the first book on motion picture of its kind that related in any way to the kind of thinking that was going on, you know, later at the, at the new Bauhaus. He's sort of blocking out the possibilities. When I was a student at the new Bauhaus, I made a list of 480-something uh, options that one could vary in the photographic process and proceed to explore a lot of those consciously, the way conceptual painters write a program today. But that had very little to do with the Bauhaus thing, except me being inspired by being in that environment. See, that's, that you have to take in the interplay between institutions and people. Maholi didn't. Uh, Maholi was somewhat like that, too. If you recall, he wrote a thing about a number of ways of seeing intensified seeing instant seeing, magnified seeing. It was a different kind of thinking than Stieglitz and Weston, or Anvil Adams, you see. I mean, Stieglitz and Weston really were thinking symbolically. They were trying to produce symbols. That was the informing passion. Whereas the informing passion of Maholi was something visual. I mean, he was looking at the world, for instance, in a new way, or trying to make it conscious. Isn't it funny that you don't see any pictures looking up in photography until Colbert does them? That's astounding. In the whole history of photography, you don't find anybody consciously pointing a camera up. See, that your seeing is always limited by what culture you're living in. 
And that's how it comes out. Today, nobody minds. When I grew up, uh, <coughs> you uh, photograph a building, you don't. If you get a little cockeyed, that's terrible. If you get a very, you know, keystone, that's okay. But today, you look in the New York Times, you see a whole batch of pictures, somebody taking a 35 millimeter camera and just tilting a little bit. Well, that, that was unforgivable. So you either got it straight or you got it looking up. <coughs> no, I mean, my interest was how it developed, this approach working with different faculties, also in, in your teaching practice and your programs, how that developed and how it's still there now. Right. That was, I created the first program that was then copied. I gave Harry a piece of typewritten paper, the problems which he kept for years. He was such, so he, see, he had never graduated college. In fact, he was kicked out of Michigan State the first year. It's nicely put, and by Tchaikovsky left or something. He was kicked out. So, and he'd never taught. He was scared to death. I used to take him to Ireland for lunch, and he would drink. You know, that was lunch, and then he would go and teach. And the very clear it seemed to me about, you might think, you know, different roles that people play in teaching. And I have some theories about, uh, you know, what kind of a faculty would be a good faculty. It isn't people like Harry, it isn't people like me. There are combinations that will produce different things. Uh, but I, was, I pulled together all these things. I'm not being the, this comes out, see, you can't talk about yourself. When you start talking, I, I, it's very difficult for me, but I have to try and get the record straight a little bit, because it's very confused. It either, people talk about my holy this program, which is nonsense, or Kepish, which is bigger nonsense, or Harry Callahan and Aaron Siskin. Harry had this little program typed out, that's what he taught. Uh, Arthur Sinzabal was a student at first class. He was then hired as a teacher when I left. Or I, 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 I was up at 47, went to see Weston. I bought these pictures, came back. Uh, we started to look for a new head. I was the one that went to New York and recruited Chemiah. Saw he was very bright, he was very verbal, and so on. Came back, he was hired. He came there. He proved to be a total fraud, as well as a devious person, a very low-grade kind of a person. Uh, finally, there was great argument, fights over him. Uh, he Sibyl did, quits in 48. Sibyl quits. Uh, he brings in Waxman, who kind of Waxman, who finally is the one that gets him fired from IIT. I leave in 49. Because Harry does not back me in my fights with Chemayev. Chemayev did something, I can't tell you, but it was very personal. It was just wrecking my whole psyche. Harry had no knowledge of that. Nobody did. Uh, so I, I quit my job and began doing photography uh, of my own. And uh, the only thing I do is I teach some history of motion picture classes. This is now at IIT. This is now at IIT. Okay. Uh, well, no, it's connected to IIT, but uh, you haven't yet moved. Right. And uh, the place is real center of 
artistic activity, and painters are there, like the little Weber's, not now, you see. It changed over the years. And Chemayev was tried to get it attached to, he couldn't raise any money like Moholy's. Nor could he teach like Moholy taught. Moholy's course, he said he could teach a course called Origins of Modern, the Modern Movement, something like that. Origins of the Modern Movement. He taught three courses, and Moholy used to teach a year, and that's all he had to say. But I, he, you know, has such a gift of verbal gifts. He went from, after he was kicked out of IIT, he goes to Harvard. You know, and after he was kicked out of Harvard, I forget where he went to Yale or someplace. Um, he's a liar and a crook, and I have no respect for the man whatsoever. Uh, the ultimate, one of the ultimate reasons we got into this was uh, he gave a party. This is just a minor reason. And uh, there were a whole crowd of people, and he prided himself on his ability as a ping pong player, so I beat him very badly in front of the crowd. He sicked uh, Ivan on me, and I beat him. He didn't know that I, when I was in the aircraft, beat the champion of Illinois or something. You know, <laughs> some stupid things like that play a role. Uh, anyway, I quit and began to do photography, and then uh, I began to do color photography. And then for two years, excepting for my some commercial work that I did, you know, magazine work, I decided I would see if there was any difference if I just did color photography. And I then proceeded to do it. I also was on the verge of a nervous breakdown because of what, it, what was happening. And I went to, into analysis. And that's where that title comes, Search of Myself. Search of myself. And the reason that I photographed in that very circumscribed area, the color things, one of the projects that I did in that period, because I was going downtown to see the animals for four times a week. And I mean, this was a classic, you know, analysis. And uh, I decided to just photograph these couple blocks in the loop every day. And <coughs> totally the opposite of, you know, I feel photography. I'd go down there, go to the analyst, and then I'd photograph. Are you also doing commercial jobs, both to support doing, yourself yes, and the an analyst? Yes, but I'm doing very badly. I go very heavily into debt for me. I'm married. I go into debt to the tune of, I owe the camera shop over $5,000. And the only reason they carried me is because the guy liked me. He knew I'd been a good teacher. It was Julie Loan at Standard Photo Supply. And why? terrible business sense, because I was in terrible shape. Uh, but he had faith in me, so he, I really, I was in debt for years because of that. Um, why color? Why color? Well, I had earlier done color, and I was curious that I was very curious about color. Uh, you want a conscious explanation, I can't really give you one. I mean, are there any sort of flashes that went, well, yes, I mean, were the, were the hits that sort of jolted you into thinking, I want to do this, coming from painting, or were they coming from... Oh, I was very interested. I had a lot of painter friends, and I was very interested in the history of painting, and long had been. And, oh, I think I, I think one of the things that, that jolted me was a negative one. I saw Weston's color photographs. Eastman had given them... I don't know how many boxes of 8x10 color film. 
And I thought they were dreadful. And they were dreadful. They were black and white photographs in color, what I would call colored photographs. Mm -hmm. So I was very curious. I, did, I was thinking a lot, and I was, you know, disrupted state from being all together to, you know, having to find a way of making a living, a new wife, a fairly new wife. Uh, this was Barbara, one of the students that I married, and. Uh, she stuck with me through this period, and I, uh, well, I was bored, too, with a lot of the photography that I saw. And colors seemed to me to have great possibilities, but nobody, I couldn't find anything that was of any interest except the Blumenfeld. See, that's where Blumenfeld came in. So I was, the conscious decision I made was, and I was making a lot of photographs, too, and I was desperate. I don't know, that, that seemed to be something uh, interesting, but I wanted color. I was hungry for color. Uh, so I made a vow that I would just photograph in color for a couple of years. Or I was just going to photograph in color, and I did it. And I shot thousands of like pictures. Yeah, I want to see them. And also. now I think this is a good time to show you some of the, uh, the color pictures of that period. go to, Detroit, to uh, New York from Detroit and see motion pictures. I would go see Stephen. Then I'd go to, you know, we'd go to those from Foley and see what was going on. Could you say something more about your reaction and about your interest in the body photographs or what you did I mean, you, you studied sociology and I yeah. was thinking that, I mean, there should be a, an interesting in your reaction about the work of photography, about the exhibitions you saw. Well, they're very tiny. They were very propagandistic. You know, there are cliches. They, uh, well, they were, I already had discovered, you know, that they were sentimental. They were mixed with, uh, but they had sentimentality. It was an overkill. You know, they had automatic reactions. If someone was black or if someone was poor, that made it good. Well, my experience during the Depression was that that wasn't quite true. You know, it's not enough to be either a baby, you know, black, or poor. Uh, and my education that helped me with a little broader sociological vision. And, you know, it wasn't naive. I was a trained observer. Uh, that they were doing something that I, I agreed with socially. You know, that there should be a union? Yes. That there should be a health program? Yes. That there should be, uh, you know, cheaper education, more available education? Yes. <clears throat> but there were, the Communist Party and that whole movement was as undemocratic a thing as I ever was related to. It must work, huh? Well, theoretically, these boxes are 50 photographs of that period, I think. There better be. <laughs> so why don't I bring those over here? Just terrific. We'll open them up. I asked them to carefully pack them, as you know, shifted one way or another. Some things are not realistic. They're shifted one way or another. 
Right. These were gang printed to be able to afford the dye transfer yeah, four at a time. And uh, are separated four at a time. Right. Yeah. So um, nobody had ever made photographs like this in the history of photography that I know of color. Going out and serious, a serious photographer making serious photographs of, with color. Now, that sounds dumb when you say it. But when I looked through the whole history of color photography, there were a lot of pictures that were made by somebody like Paul Outerbridge that I knew. Most of those pictures are, and if you look in his book, are commercial jobs of one kind or another, or an idea that he had, like a woman and a snake, or a woman and an apple, and that kind of thing. But to go out and encounter the world and make, you know, serious prints, die catches, I don't know anybody else. Do you? I mean, it sounds dumb, you see, but that was the state of what was going on the way I perceived it. But nobody was exploring color. Now, Maholian was making some photographs of things, color photographs, where things, you know, were arranged, and he photographed the color gels, you know, or colored lights on things. But, uh, so I started, well, first I started, you know, just shooting with the transparencies very freely. And, uh, you know, then gradually I got immersed in the thing, and then I wanted prints. And I must tell you that I had had a color show earlier, the artist to in Detroit, and I had a terrible experience. They were made on type C prints. A lot of my friends bought them, and they came back the next year and they all faded. And 
that Baptist was then called the New Bows. Mm -hmm. And that was the second semester of the first year. And there was places in kind of state of increasing up. This is now February. It started in September of 37, if I remember correctly, and then I went there in the uh, 38. And what do you want? How many students were there? A lot of scholarships? Were you the only scholarship no, no. student? There were a couple of scholarships. Uh, I don't know who else had them, not many. Uh, and you went to the basic course. You had to do all the basic Everybody did. That's all there was. There wasn't anything else. It was a very small, it was a tiny school. There were, um, I think, full-time students. I can't recall exactly. Maybe there were 30 of them. And uh, then there were some night students. The Molly, you know, were trying desperately to get this thing going. People who were mainly in advertising were some architects or designers and uh, even some night photography courses that I called. That's all in the catalogs, which are available. And uh, Maholi lectured on all kinds of things. And uh, the, the uh, Archipenko was my teacher in sculpture. Sculptor, as he would say. And uh, we all, the, the day school students, all lived around. So it was a very lively bunch of people. And they were all older people in the main. That is, they'd finished college. Or they were architects. You know, or they were painters and painted for, you know, 10 years. One question at that time, how many students were there or people were there who were interested specifically in photography? Was there anybody who wants to learn photography at that time? Me. Well, later on, some people developed and did a lot of photography. photography. There was a man named Leonard Nirendorf who took some, made, he was primarily a designer. And Nathan Lerner, who had taken some earlier pictures, you know, sort of documentary in the 30s. Uh, when you say later, what do you mean which time? You say later than what? Well, Nathan me? claims to be a photographer today. He wasn't a photographer. Nathan was a designer. No, excuse me. When you said there were people later who were well, interested later, in... Well, I'm saying Nirendorf was a designer, yeah. and I have seen his name mentioned in connection with photography. To me, who watch photography very closely, I never heard of Nirendorf, but I've seen his name since mentioned, his, and I knew him as a designer. In the same way that Nathan suddenly surfaces as a photographer, you know, through Frumpkin, Alice Adams and Frumpkin, uh, with class pictures, that's what Nathan has been showing, pictures were done in class. And uh, Nathan did at one point, uh, may have taught photography, you know, after this is later, but he, he was a designer for years and years for Chipsom. He made these kits, and he never did photography. It's all by land. Now he's doing photography, 
and you know, going around being a photographer, which is all news to me. If you wanted me to hire him as a photographer, I would never hire him. Okay, more of it. You were there. When does Henry Holmes Smith? Henry Holmes Smith was the assistant to Kepish. He was Kepish's. How does Kepish found Henry Holmes Smith? Do you know about that? Uh, Henry had been doing some photography, I think, in connection with news, but I can't remember. And he had. Uh, heard about Maholi, and he was interested in coming there. He was not a student. He was an assistant to Kepish. He ran the dark room. And Kepish didn't know much about photography at all. You know, he was a visual, visually, visual designer is what Kepish is. And, but he's very sweet. I used to spend a lot of time with Kepish and his darling wife, Juliet. And Kepish was, you know, very tender fellow. Uh, but Kepich also taught, as I recall, you know, how to make wire uh, type and uh, you know typography. And then in the uh, workshop, there was a guy named Braindick who couldn't speak anything but German. He married an American woman, and she translated. And then uh, there were three teachers from the University of Chicago, marvelous teachers, uh, Charles Morris, the semanticist, and uh, uh, Gerard, the uh, uh, biologist, and uh, Eckert. Eckert, the physicist, and they were terrific. And then there was... Uh, were they donating their time in terms of, in interest of supporting... They were very much interested. Uh, Morris was, you know, the semantics movement, the blue book, was very hot. Uh, Maholi was a very, you know, lively fellow going out. Some people accepted him, many people. Many people reacted negatively to Maholi. Uh, and that was the story, you see, the why the place blew up that semester. Okay. That semester, the place... Was very lively. I remember... But I have one question. From yeah. where Kepis came? From which place? Kepish came because he had been working in Maholi in Berlin. They were doing, as I recall, maybe Berlin and then England uh, after they got out of Germany. Um, we, we came to together. I'm not sure about that. In the information that I was reading yesterday, that's also said. He up with Maholi again in Berlin. That, well, that's what I, I sort of remember that they did work in Berlin. Now, that I wouldn't know, yeah. but I'm pretty sure that they worked in London, and then Kepish came, was there the first semester of the school book. Uh, that might be in Sybil's book. Uh, I don't know if she mentioned when Kepish. Okay, and I, some... I don't know how sympathetic Sybil was to Kepish. In some articles and German books, it's mentioned about the reaction inside the school, that there were students who split, who didn't want to work on Ed Mahoney's method. Could right. you speak about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, that was, for me, it was kind of, the, it was a very exciting place, a very exciting time. It was a very short time. It was just from February until uh, maybe June or something, and then we, uh, 
and that included a trip to Black Mountain College and a trip to New Orleans. Uh, specifically, by the time I got there, there were a little cadre of people who consisted of Tony Smith, who's now the famous sculptor, who there was Fritz Bultmann, who was a painter now, very well-known painter, who had studied in Germany and bought many large Kandinsky's, like 40 of them. There was a young man that was to become an architect by the name of Ted Van Fossen. He's an architect somewhere in Ohio, Pennsylvania now. And there was a French painter by the name of Carazzo, Fritz Carazzo, I think his name was. These constituted a very hardcore of people who fought, began to fight in Holy. By the time I got there, they had already were fighting the Holy, saying that he did not, was not teaching the way the Baha'is was, and they didn't like the way he was teaching and the direction of the thing. They got to a woman who was a secretary and who represented being the conduit for the money from the association of whatever. Stalin. Norma Stalin, yeah. Uh, I haven't looked over, you know, these things for a long time, so I... And we've just been looking at Good. So time. good. That's yeah. very good. Norma Stalin, who was sort of dumb to me. She's still around. I don't know. Uh, I have one question. No. The people you mentioned, they were educated before in other universities? Everybody there practically okay. was educated before. No, I'm was, interested where. And with some young people who just came out of high school. That's what was so funny. I, what I want yeah. to know is where did they get their information Car about the German Bauhaus? Right, uh, was a painter. He was already a guy that apparently knew a lot of French painters. He was an older person. I don't recall how old he was, maybe. character, because there was a lot that was lacking in the Holy's character, 
was that after this was all over, and he started anew with different sources of support, he rehired <laughs> Archipenko and Brandon. <laughs> Which really <laughs> is quite unusual. Normally, you know, if somebody does that, you hack them forever. Um, anyway, Fritz had been in Germany. How much he actually knew about the Bauhaus? Fritz was a young sort of genius. Fritz Bultmann, yeah. And uh, Fritz was there, and uh, quite small, very lively, very bright, New Orleans. Uh, Do you know where he had studied in Germany? If he had been I don't know if he even studied. I know he'd been there. there. I know that he bought all these Kandinsky paintings. His father was an undertaker in New Orleans. And uh, in the spring, that spring vacation, I went down, we drove down my car, Fritz and I. No, that's not right. We drove down to Fritz's place, uh, somebody's name I've forgotten now, and uh, we visited Fritz, stayed there for maybe you know, 10 days or something, had a marvelous time, his family uh, you know, was fairly well-to-do and had a lot of rich friends, and we used to go on Lake Pontchartrain and you know, drink and play with girls and uh, on a big yacht and visit the playhouse there and squirt soda down on the you know, people below. I had a wonderful time, marvelous, you know, dinners with candlelight. And, uh, their place had an old slave house in the back and they ran this big uh, um, funeral parlor. And Fritz's sister is a woman named Muriel Bolton, who was a public relations person for the Metropolitan Opera, I believe. Very bright woman. She, I think she was there that time, Well, Then we went to, well, from Fritz's, we came back by way of the Black Mountain College. And I was just getting going. We had some relationship to the, you know, the new Baos. And so I was interested in seeing that. So we drove over to Black Mountain College. And that was a mess. You know, uh, yeah, on paper it looks all organized, but they were having all kinds of fights. And very small, and no money, and you know, all kinds of problems between teachers and students. That, did you read, read Duberman's thing, book on Black Mountain? I've just read part of it. Uh, anyway, what's your question? No, I would like to hear more specific things about that. Ask me some specific questions. Okay. What did they mean? In which way was Mahoney's teaching method different in terms of the Bible? Uh, I can't give you a clear answer to that. Because I don't know how they would even know. None of them had been to the Bauhaus. The Bauhaus was, I guess, the closed Mies van der Rohe, I guess, uh, kept it going and we had moved it to Berlin, didn't they? Berlin? Uh, tried to deal with the Nazis? See, that's a question that's very still open, just how much Mies dealt with the Nazis. Sybil. You know, her dying day insisted that Mies dealt with the Nazis. Uh, people here say no. You know, 
I don't know. Uh, there was a very real difference, and but I don't think this bothered them. Uh, you know, photography was taught and became very important there. Um, I think it mainly had to do with some role of painting. They were all paint-oriented. Carazzo was a painter, later became an architect. Uh, Fritz was a painter. Tony Smith was very interested in painting. I think he was a painter at that point rather than a sculptor. He knew a great deal about painting. I learned a great deal about the picture playing between those three guys. You know, what painting, modern painting, at least in France, was, was about. Uh, they didn't like the, uh, uh, the way, I, I think, the way painting was being handled. Uh, there were drawing courses, you know, drawing problems. Um, I mean, photography class. The photography classes. Um, I'm curious what kind of photographic education you had. What were the concerns? Were well, the I, as I tried to explain, see, I was already a very competent photographer. I, I understand that. But I did the problems. Right. Uh, the first problem was, uh, you know, make photograms. We, we made lots and lots of photographs. The Hollywood stop in, Capture stop in. Uh, Henry, I don't recall playing very much of a role in my contact with, uh, with the thing. I, I mean, he he was there, but uh, to me, Capish and I talked a great deal, and Molly, we talked. Um, I was a klutz as far as drawing. I never uh, you know, made any claims to being a manual artist. I, uh, you know, that was all very tough for me. They were drawing problems, drawing your thumbprint, and uh, you know, draw a piece of wood or something. Uh, I did them, and they were terrible, and I had no interest in that, except in the them. Uh, the problems of the alphabet, designing an alphabet, bored me. You know, I mean, I was not interested in that. I did it. Uh, the things that were exciting, the workshop was kind of exciting, the hand sculpture. Uh, and then there were crossover problems. See, that was the most interesting thing. You take and make a hand sculpture in the shop. Then you take and withdraw it, and then you photograph it. Or you take and make a light modulator. You draw it, and then you photograph it. And after, if I recall correctly, the, uh, we did a lot of problems dealing with first the photogram and then textures. You know, photographing pebbles on the beach or wood and that kind of thing. So, which accompanied the problem of the uh, tactile chart. So it was kind of an integrated thing. And that was, I think, his great contribution, that there was carryover from all these things. Uh, Do you have any an American, to explain you why this was important, you see, an American art education at that point was very crafts-oriented dealing with uh, everything from knitting to pounding tin and cutting up cans, you know, to make something. 
the new Bauhaus changed American art education, period. After World War II, there wasn't any art education in America on any level that was not affected by the problems and teachings of the Bauhaus. Ask me some more specific One question. Yeah. Do you know something about why Moholy didn't ask Peter Hans to come at the School of Design when Peter Hans arrived in this country? Because Peter Hans was a very good friend of, of was a very good friend of uh, Mies, and uh, at that point, Maholi and Mies were practically deadly enemies. Do you understand better about the Maholi Mies relationship hostility here? Well, I think probably it had something to do with what's never talking about politics. Uh, Maholi was very liberal kind of orientation and helped the Hungarian actually went out and raised funds for Hungarians, I know, devoted a great deal of effort you know, during the war to raising funds for Hungarian refugee organizations. And as far as I know, Mies was never involved. He was always either, he was probably the best apolitical. I mean, I was at Mies' house many times. I knew many of the students, I used to go there, because I didn't have this kind of particular feeling. I thought Nice was very rigid, Moholy was very experimental. Nice was very, you know, had made up his mind very early to go along a very straight path. Sybil uh, hated Nice, And Peter Hans, you see, was, who had, I believe, done some photography under Mies at the last days of the Bauhaus there. Peter Hans was uh, the leader of the Department of Photography, which was uh, founded in Dessau. I mean, in Weimar they hadn't had that. Oh, I know that. But in Dessau, he was the, did, it was only at the very end. That's right. I don't know what year, but it would probably be 1929 or 30. It was very late. No, yeah, it's earlier. It's Dessau started 26, it's 28, 29. I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, you'd have to prove that to me. Uh, I think it's much later. Um, that's why when Peyrons came here, and, uh, he would go to Mies, but then he never taught photography here. And I've seen Peter Hans photographs. In fact, I've lectured on them. Uh, Peter Hans photographs were very much of the end of the 20s. They, he was very interested in the repetition of the object. He was very interested in the effect of light. And he was doing the collages that were being done in the 20s, only he was doing it photographically. He was taking and juxtaposing you know, fish heads or fish skins and cloth and wire netting mesh. So there was, uh, it was kind of a photo montage, an assemblage that was photographed. Uh, very tight. <clears throat> now compared to what I knew about photography later, uh, his was a very rigid kind of education. And when he taught at IIT, you know, at Mies, he taught a visual design course, and it's very rigid, very rigid. Nothing like what I was to do 
In the first year there, there was That answers your question, I think, of why Moli didn't hire parents. They go... The Mies had been here quite a number of years when Moli arrived, or only... No, no, they arrived almost at the same time. Okay. I think Mies came here earlier or something. In the first year, um, were there any commercial, did Maholi or Kepesh um, do any commercial exhibits for the businessmen who had sponsored put up the money? Meaning, I know later Maholi did some commercial jo exhibition jobs. Maholi did work almost immediately <clears throat> for people uh, in order to get some money for the school and himself uh, for, well, I think United Airlines, Patterson, William Patterson. Uh, particularly, and also Spiegel, yeah. and maybe even the Parker Penn thing may have started that early. I think that's a little later. I think it's a little later too. Oh, was there yeah, any discussion? Later. Yeah. Was there any discussion, or do you remember any discussion about artists working for business or designers working for business? I mean, whether it was seen as this is pragmatic and expedient because we lack funds at this point, or was it seen as this is a, a creative challenge like any creative challenge? No, I, well, I think the whole attitude was very clearly uh, metaphor was that he didn't think artists should dress any differently than anybody else. Holy always wore a business suit, and when he painted, you know, he could dress comfortably, but he didn't, he was not, at that point anyway, believing that one should be bohemian or that one's uh, sex life particularly uh, you know, was a great concern to him. He said uh, earlier and later, he really didn't care about anybody's sex life. As long as you did your work, he couldn't care less whether you know, you're a homosexual or you know, cheating on your wife or uh, living with three women. He, that he really didn't care. He was very free that way. And Sybil was quite free, too. I mean, she was a great gossip. I'm sorry she didn't live to write a social history of Chicago. It was fantastic. Uh, 